Can't get enough of football? Chance! Goal! Superhuman! Special, special goal! Incredible! Just incredible! Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to another edition of Football Insiders. It's been a while since we've done a podcast, so I've almost forgotten how to do it. I'm Benita Merciatis. I'm from Fair Play Publishing and also the founder of the Football Writers Festival. Today we're speaking with Dr. Hunter Fujak, who is the author of Code Wars, The Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival, a wonderful read if you're interested in the business of sport, not just our football, but the other football codes and more generally the very competitive Australian sports environment. But let's not waste time hearing about it. Let's talk with Hunter. Hunter, welcome to the Football Insiders podcast, the first one for a while. Yes, thank you. It's been a good to have a little bit of a break from thinking about Code Wars nonstop. <laughs> it, it is, but I, I guess we'll start off with, you know, most of the people listening to this will be rusted on football fans, although I hope there are a few others as well. But describe for us first from an academic perspective, particularly how different is Australia's sports landscape? Australia's sport landscape is incredibly unique in the global context. Uh, obviously, everyone who would be listening to this is acutely aware that soccer, or I'll call, I'll call it soccer for the purposes of uh, avoiding confusion in this, this conversation, um, soccer is you know, predominantly the world game and the dominant sport of most countries. Uh, where it's not the dominant sport, it's certainly the dominant uh, football code. So if we think of places like India, for instance, uh, where it might be cricket, um, still the most popular football coat. Uh, Australia is unique in the sense that it's not even Australia's second most favourite uh, football code, but most likely somewhere around third. And the only real equivalence to that is potentially Ireland and maybe New Zealand that might have similar contexts. But what really distinguishes Australia even from those two is that among our four football codes, there's this very sort of uh, equilibrium in terms of the contestation for hearts and minds between consumers. What do you mean by that? There's an equilibrium. As in, in most settings, in most business settings, and even in, in sports settings, typically one or two codes dominate the local market. Uh, there's actually very few places where multiple different sports uh, share the platform of being the country's most popular. And for those kind of examples, we have to think of a place like America, where uh, basketball, American football, and to a lesser degree, baseball these days, still have some sort of equilibrium in terms of the balance of interest held in that country. Country. In most other places like uh, England, for example, the English Premier League dominates the overall sport landscape considerably. Um, and Australia is much more like America in that we have all these football codes, which in itself is very unique. But what's quite novel as well is that they there's not simply one very small code and one very dominant code. They all interact with some level of interest between them. But do you, do you think, fun, I mean, the, the the biggest one by far, of course, is the AFL, and, and we'll come into that a little bit um, down the track. But fundamentally, do you think the four can survive with a population of 25, maybe eventually 35 million in 50 years' time? 
It's a really great question uh, and probably the most important question for sport administrators to to be considering. Uh, For a long time, they have been able to survive simply because so much of our sport consumption was domestic because we were in a pre-digital environment where, you know, at least our sports only really competed against each other in a domestic setting uh, and there weren't obviously then inflationary pressures on wages and competition relative to international markets. But as we increasingly uh, internationalize through through media technology, our sports are not only competing with Australian uh, leagues, but they're increasingly competing with international leagues. And so it's really notable that, for instance, outside of Australia, uh, outside of America and China, Australia is the number one market for NBA league, club, league pass subscribers in the world. And that's even despite our small population. So there are more Australians who subscribe to the NBA streaming than there are in Brazil, for instance, which has many fold more people. So increasingly, as our sport leagues locally compete with international competitors, there's increasing financial competition, which coming back to your question, does raise the query of whether all four can survive longer term. It's it's particularly a big issue, uh, and I'm going to talk about football or soccer, um, obviously, as I said earlier, because that's mostly who is listening to this, but it's particularly an issue um, in soccer in Australia because there's not just the A-League and the W-League, but there's the national teams. And then, of course, we've, you know, recently with the decisions around the various streaming services, there's the European competitions, um, there's Asian competitions, um, you know, there's the World Cup, obviously, that's an outlier, I guess. Um, Do you think that, uh, I mean, it's already something that's been talked about on social media about the number of streaming platforms that um, a football fan, a soccer fan will need to be able to subscribe to. How do you think that's going to go? Who's, who's going to suffer the most from that uh, besides the person buying? <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, if you, if you pu- purely followed social media, you would, you would get the perspective that this is this disastrous, horrible thing that's terrible for soccer fans or football fans. But I sort of take a contrary view that, you know, if we go back 20, 30 years, half, half those content options we now have available just simply weren't available to domestic consumers. So, you know, when we think about the word fragmentation, fragmentation fundamentally refers to when you have something that was once whole and then becomes parts. And I don't think you could necessarily call what's happening fragmentation because we we just didn't have access to half this content in the first place for it to fragment. What we're really seeing is an explosion of choice. And, I mean, there's not really a, a, a gun to any individual consumers head as to which one they should subscribe to and i think you know from from my own consumer research and as is well understood i guess in most uh, consumer product categories you know you're always going to have consumers from the very casual uh, light end through to the very heavy fanatic avid end and for each one of those consumers they'll be able to make their individual choice as to how comfortable they are at various price points consuming as much as they find value in so again i think the market will reach an equilibrium where consumers on that spectrum will subscribe to as many is as valuable to them and so overall i think it's very positive for football fans because because they now have this great abundance of choice that they previously didn't necessarily have. Having said that, you know, in terms of where the lay of the land will sit, I guess, in terms of the various options, um, I think overall it would be fair to say that the A-League 
suffered from the loss of the English Premier League from the Fox Sports landscape. You know, prior to Optus Sport getting the rights to the English Premier League, there were games, and this is, I guess, in when A-League was getting its sort of peak television ratings, there were games that were getting maybe 60,000, 70,000 viewers for the 7.30 A-League game, and then you would have a 9.30 early EPL game. And sometimes if that was like a Liverpool uh, evident derby, that would get 90 to 100,000 viewers. So there's very strong interest in the domestic market for our big international leagues. Um, and so I think, I think to a degree the A-League has suffered from losing it being concentrated in one spot. And the reality is that the A-League very much competes not just against three other domestic football codes, but it's probably its bigger comp- its bigger competitor realistically is some of those international leagues. Yeah, which which brings me to another point I was going to ask you about in relation to football. In, in one of the competitive positions that football has always claimed, and I'm amongst those people who've claimed that, is that it's part of a global sport and it, it truly is the global sport and the global football code and that's a positive thing. But as with any positive, there's a negative to that, is, isn't there? I mean, do you, you know, do you see overall the global nature of football a blessing or a curse for the domestic game? I think it's a curse, personally, and I think uh, that's an easy position to have, not necessarily being an avid football fan myself, uh, more so looking at this uh, from an external perspective. Because, uh, And the reason I think it's a curse is simply because consumers, uh, sport consumers, whether it's general business or sport specifically, you know, sport consumers are quite savvy. And, you know, because there's no alternative version of AFL played anywhere, anywhere else in the world, the AFL can obviously leverage having this perception of having these high quality, super talented, best in the world athletes. You know, so when consumers watch a, watch the AFL, they know with certainty that they're watching the best AFL in the world that is available to them. Consumers know, and uh, you know, this has been talked about a lot by people like Simon Hill, Robbie Slater. They've talked about this need to get away from comparing the A League to the English Premier League, for instance. And that's that's a really admirable aspiration. And you know, certainly, you know, the A League shouldn't be trying to position itself as this super elite competition versus the English Premier League. But it's unavoidable that everyday consumers watch the two products. And in fact, the the more avid soccer, the more avid a soccer fan you are. The more you're uh, discerning of the quality difference differences between the two leagues. So, unfortunately, it's it's one thing to say that we need to support the A League and we can't compare it to the EPL. But at the end of the day, that's what soccer fans do because they're discerning consumers. Um, one one of the things that you mention in your book is about, and which I found the most fascinating, and I, I say this from the perspective of having a bit like you, you've li- you live in Melbourne, you're from Sydney, I've lived in every capital city in Australia, um, uh, is the difference between cities and the sports they follow. Can you talk us through that and what you found and, and how you would characterise it? Yeah, it's actually, interestingly enough, my favorite part of the book to research and write about, and not necessarily something that I um, intrinsically knew a lot about before researching about the book when I, when I look at it from a historical perspective. But what's really interesting about the Australian sport landscape, most people know that there's an AFL-NRL divide that kind of divides the northeast from the southwest of Australia. But 
you know, if you take a historical lens, we've really had five or six major cities really develop quite independently in terms of their football preferences. And what's notable about that is that each each individual city and therefore each individual state kind of developed organically by themselves. And the decisions that were made, you know, 140 years ago have largely set the sort of tectonic plates of where our football preferences have remained to this day. And so if for me, the most interesting example of that is Tasmania, where actually Australia Australian rules football was the last of the football codes to be played in in that state. And in fact, the state basically played uh, football, soccer and rugby before AFL even came about. And it was really just the evangelism and the advocating of key individuals and the lobbying of Australian rules that really was able to succeed in converting that state from what was previously a football rugby state into an Australian rules state. And that story, which Ian Sison's covered quite a few times across the country, you know, that's a story that's very familiar across the whole country is these, these seminal moments 140 years ago, usually resulting in Australian rules getting an advantage over the other codes that really became cemented for 140 years plus. If we look into modern times today, what's what's really fascinating is that there still remain these very big differences between our cities. And probably the most interesting for me is the difference between Sydney and Melbourne. You know, Melbourne likes to call itself the sporting capital of Australia, and that's in some ways a fair title. But actually, you know, if you look at Sydney, Sydney is probably the multicultural sports capital of Australia in that it's the place where people are most likely to show an interest in three, if not four, football codes or at least two. Whereas if you look in Melbourne, the passion for AFL is so strong and the culture of AFL is so strong that they really haven't experienced any of that fragmentation that might draw interest away from AFL to some of the other football codes. So there are really big city by city differences uh, between the North and the South. Um, and that's, I think, reflected, I guess, also in where a lot of our Socceroos and Matildas have come from, which have been disproportionately from the North rather than the South. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, you know, quite surprising in the Matildas in particular. I, I can't quite remember the figures off the top of my head, but I think there's something only like about four um, that have come from Victoria in, in a particular period. Up, on, I don't mean the more modern period, but in the mm. early Matildas. It's quite incredible considering the population of the country. Um, just talking of the Matildas, um, one of the big drives in all sports at the moment. Um, and I guess, again, as football people, as soccer people, we'd say that we have a competitive edge on the other sports, or we did have, um, is that women playing the game and the fact that the other codes are trying to get some professionalism of, of the women's game. What impact do you think that's going to have on the four football codes and does it actually make a difference? It's a really interesting question. And coming back to your earlier question about is internationalization or the global game a blessing or a curse, probably the women's game is the the perfect microcosm of, I guess, why it's slightly a curse. Because up until about three years ago, our W League was arguably one of the top two, three leagues in the entire world. You know, the ability of the women to straddle the W League with the US League uh, meant that we not only had, obviously, the core of our Matildas, who are themselves the best in the world, uh, but we also had, obviously, imports from other places coming into the W League and really making it one of the strongest competitions around. 
Now, obviously, with the ensuing growth of the Super League in England and uh, other European clubs investing more heavily into women's football, in the space of two years, we've seen the complete erosion in terms of the strength of the W League by global league standards. And so, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. On one hand, we should be celebrating the fact that our women are increasingly able to earn a professional living from football. That's an amazing thing that we should be very happy about. But there's certainly an element of, uh, I guess, uh, a mourning, mourning the fact that we, we've probably lost what was once one of the strongest women leagues around. So, you know, the fact that there'll be people who someday will be able to say that they got to watch Sam Kerr play for Perth you know, before she became one of our best, probably our best ever footballer, full stop. You know, you know the days of that happening are probably now gone forever. And so um, I think that speaks to the challenge of global economics in football. Um, and to your, to your point about whether it's a competitive advantage, you know, it's important to note that the W League predates the AFLW by, by nearly a decade. And mm. so, you know, while it definitely came first, it definitely didn't really force the rest of the sport industry to think about women's sport as strongly as the AFLW then catalyzed the NRLW and the Super W to all form basically instantly. So I think it says a lot about the power of the AFL that after a year of forming the AFLW, it forced the two rugby codes to basically instantly within a year form their own women's leagues, having previously not given it a second's thought. So I think this is an example where football probably doesn't get the credit and Football Federation Australia, Football Australia probably doesn't get the credit it deserves for having this fantastic W League um, where really AFLW gets a lot of glory for the social achievements and, and the outcomes it's achieved in a very short period of time. So again, a bit of a long-winded winded answer, but I think unfortunately we've already seen the AFLW kicking a lot of goals in terms of attendance, viewership, membership in a very short period of time. Um, and even though the W leagues had a very strong first mover advantage, I'm not sure that has converted into tangible benefits for football as it, as we may have hoped. And that's an interesting, um, an interesting comment. I mean, so what do you think? Um, I mean, I've sort of always thought of it as in some ways the AFL probably pushed ahead with its AFLW because it could see, um, the inroads that the W League and women's football in particular at grassroots level was making into into sort of the participation base in particular. So, and, and for a lot of the sports at elite level, it's all about the, the competition for elite sports people. Um, but what do you think has actually caused AFLW, AF, the AFL to invest so heavily in, or invest at all in AFLW? Um, I come from a consumer background, which obviously taints my answer here. But I, while the AFL likes to put forward a very much a social agenda in terms of it being the right thing to do, uh, along with a lot of other equality measures that they've put in place, uh, my opinion is that it's very much a commercially driven strategy. They're conscious of the fact that, you know, they are, while they are the biggest sport in the country, there is a male skew, a strong skew in their participation and a lesser skew still in their attendance, in their membership um, and their viewing. And obviously, uh, mothers are the ones who tend to make decisions around what their children do in terms of participation and whatnot. And I think for them, it is very much a commercial agenda to realize that we need to 
capture more women and that will strengthen our code overall by virtue of creating a secondary product. So it's not a coincidence that the AFLW is played not within the season of AFL because they don't want to cannibalize their own competitions. The AFLW is played in the preceding summer, which happens to help them con- uh, cannibalize the A-League in all the summer sports rather than cannibalizing their own league. So I think there's a very strong commercial element driving uh, what is marketed as a social agenda. Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, when I first looked at this many, many years ago, I'm talking 1995 or 94, um, and, and even back then participation in soccer for kids was was you could put the other three football codes together and didn't get anywhere near it. But in terms of um, attendance at the professional level game, which of course was then the NS, the National Soccer League, one of the things which was really striking with the AFL is the, their attendance at AFL matches by women was something like about 40% as opposed mm. to the then National Soccer League of about 18%. And that, and that was borne out by some independent, you know, smaller research as well. So I just wonder, though, you know, when you say it's a commercial decision, one, they've already, they've already had a large number of women who have supported their sport. Um, but what it is that would have made them tip over into having a women's competition thinking that would mean more women would would actually support the sport? Or do you, when you say commercial, it's about evening out, uh, I guess, to put to paraphrase your book, um, evening out, evening out the battle for fans' dollars and survival over the course of a year rather than just six months of the season. Yeah, I think that's probably the key point that I probably didn't articulate was uh, when I teach students about sport management and and sport marketing, I talk to them about the sporting calendar. I know, uh, you know, Gemba, the sport consultancies are quite strong on this as well. Is this idea of the sporting calendar and owning parts of the calendar? And if you if you think about where the AFLW is played, and they've announced that with the expansion, they're going to push it into December, I believe, starting in December, going through to mid February, early March when the AFL starts. So if you look at the sporting calendar of the AFL now, basically from December when the AFLW starts through to March when the AFL starts, the season concludes, then they do their national draft and all that. They've basically got content nearly every single month in the year. And there's only maybe a one-month break in about November where there's no real AFL content, so to speak of. And so what that means is when we think about the battle for consumers, if you have a casual AFL fan, for instance, they now really have less reason to switch onto something else because they can literally stay attuned to what's happening in the AFL 11 of the 12 months of the year. And the best direct example I can think of of this was I remember I went to an A-League game. I forget if it was uh, Victory or City, but I went to an A-League game that was on the same night as the launch of the Richmond Tigers AFLW team at uh, Punt Road at their local grounds, or maybe it was Icon Park, but it was one of the two. And that that was in the season where attendance was still free. I think it was the last one before COVID, so you didn't need to check in. It was just walk in as you please. And I went to this victory game and there was about five or 6,000 people less than I'd anticipated to be there. And I'm certain, just anecdotally, that that's because because of the overlapping audience between people who would follow both the Victory and maybe Richmond Tigers, some proportion of those fans that would have been at that Victory game, if it's, if it's a Victory game, actually made their way to the uh, Richmond Tigers season launch for the women. And so we use this term cannibalization in marketing where 
uh, basically they're able to kind of steal that consumer away from what would have previously been an A-League attendee by offering them an AFLW alternative in a time period that they previously would have been doing nothing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I'm wondering, though, whether that might be a peculiarly Melbourne thing as well. Um, and by the way, I think most Victory supporters are Collingwood fans. But no. <laughs> <laughs> and those who are not will probably be you know, yelling at, at this podcast by now. Um, but it, do you think that's more a Melbourne thing or is that also common in, in well, you mentioned Sydney, how it's a multicultural um, city when it comes to sport. So do you think that applies elsewhere as well? Yeah, it's hard to say. It's definitely a case-by-case scenario. Um, it's definitely a strong factor in Melbourne. But I think, you know, I think it's definitely in play in every single city. So even in Sydney, obviously having the GWS Giants who play out of Dremoyne Oval, uh, play out of Blacktown Park, what they're really doing is creating alternatives, uh, alternative consumption points for AFL in a, in a time period period of the year when typically there'd be no AFL to watch or consume. So um, I think it stands to reason that essentially the AFLW is kind of able to draw away some of the attention from some of the other summer sports uh, in all the major cities. Um, if you were, uh, if you were, you know, as you know now, the A-League is, is a more or less a separate entity to the Football Association. If you were sort of um, strategizing for the A-League, <clears throat> what are some of the key things that you would do? And as, as you're probably aware, they've just announced a new, a pretty good TV deal, I, th- yep. I think most of us think, um, and they haven't yet announced when they're going to play the season. Um, what are some of the, as well as those commenting on those key points, what are some of the other things that you would advise them to do or to think about? Well, I think the first, the starting point is to acknowledge that I think the deal that has been signed, well, I'll focus specifically on the A-League component of the deal. The deal that was signed definitely appears to have learnt from both the broadcaster and the rights holder being the football clubs. They've, they've definitely learnt from the rugby deal and I think achieved a very uh, positive deal for both parties. And the reason I say that is because if we compare the rugby union deal to the Football Australia deal, you know, both organizations are under immense stress and pressure heading into negotiating in a COVID period. And many people had their prospects more or less pegged to be at a similar level. You know, Football Australia definitely, I think, learnt from some of the nuances of the rugby deal. And what I mean by that is when rugby signed their deal with nine, they don't appear to have included a clause saying the free-to-air game has to be on the primary channel. And what happened was the one weekly game on free-to-air ended up on the secondary nine channel. Now, the second you're on a secondary channel, you lose about half your audience because television viewing is habitual and people, you know, by virtue of being called the main channel, you are guiding people to watch what's on the main channel. And so the fact that uh, Football Australia has a contractual right to be shown on the main channel every week is... The A-League, should I say. Uh, The fact that it will be on the main channel every week is a huge victory for the clubs as opposed to potentially being shunted out of sight. Conversely, when the rugby union deal was signed, it was only for three years. And my instant thought was three years is simply not enough time to build a sustainable subscriber base if you're Stan. And what will happen for them is after year three, they might finally be getting some traction in terms of their numbers and they're going to be up for renewal. And then who knows what will happen. Whereas the fact that the A-leg deal is, I believe, for five years with an option to extend for the broadcaster, if my memory is correct, means they've really given themselves the correct time horizon to try build the audience because the reality is it's not going to be a huge audience to start with it's probably going to be a a bit of a loss leading exercise for the first few years 
And by virtue of having that extended contract, having that little bit of equity, it kind of helps incentivize a longer term relationship rather than the short three-year rugby deal. So I think both parties have very much learnt from the rugby deal and optimized a pretty good deal for both parties. What does it mean for soccer? I think it's uh, I think it's a it's a great deal. Um, and if and if football can't penetrate the mainstream by the end of this deal, then potentially they never will. I think um, this really is the best chance they have. They've finally got all the ingredients correct. What would I do if I was in charge of the marketing? Um, this might sound a little bit controversial for your listeners, but <laughs> I would actually, if I was Channel 10, I would consciously, and I was talking to Simon Hill about this the other day, who disagrees with me <laughs> as a fair warning, I, I would um, I would consciously move away from marketing football and A-League as the global game um, because I think that only reinforces a perception of comparison to international leagues. And so, you know, while the A-League's had successes with Del Piero and they've still got marketable, marketable people like Castro and stuff that they can lean on, you know, if I was a Channel 10 executive, I would be moving very much away from relying on any of the international elements of the game as part of my marketing. And I would instead be focusing entirely on guys like Liam Reddy, you know, Duke, um, I'd be, and, and even my commentary team, I'd be getting people like Alex Brosk, like Australian people involved. I'd, yeah, it might seem contrary to everything that soccer is, but I'd be I'd be consciously moving away from the marketing of it as global, and try reminding Australian viewers that there are Aussies in this league. Um, you know, there's Aussie people who go on to do great things internationally. So I would very much shift the marketing to focus on the on the more marketable stars in the competition who are Australians. And what would you carry that through to the W League too? I mean, particularly as you know, as you said earlier, the W League was one of the top leagues in in the world, and now most, not all, but most of our top players have gone to overseas clubs and are doing well there. What would you do in terms of the W League? Which, of course, there's going to be a big push on because in two years' time, we're hosting the sing- single biggest event for women sports people in the world or co-hosting. Mm. So what would you think about that? Um, you know, it's a really interesting part because when they've, when they've done the announcement, they've just announced a grand pool of money for both leagues, but I'm yet to see any confirmation of exactly how much of that money relates to A-League versus W-League, which has implications obviously for salary caps and whatnot for the two leagues. So it'll be really curious to see how that falls out. Um, I would make an, I would again make an argument as a non-football person that it might actually be better to allocate over allocate money to the W league to allow them to have a higher salary cap and actually try rather than, you know, maintaining the status quo of your men's league being the thing that you focus on. You know, we have, we have a very high quality Matilda's team. You know, our female, our female footballers are doing by far comparatively better than men's teams in terms of reaching the pinnacle of clubs in Europe. So I would, I would be tempted to over allocate funds into the W league at the expense of the W league, which would be a brave thing for them to do in terms of then positioning the W league. I think where the uh, AFLW has been very successful is understanding that the two products are different and they appeal to people in different ways. Uh, I can imagine a scenario where they're very hesitant to push the AFLW into big stadiums to try play in front of the 60,000 people sponsored by Sportsbet, the tab with people drinking and all that. I think, I think there's a, there's a distinct place where women's football 
in any code adds value that's distinct from the men's. And I, I think part of that is that return to the suburban ground where it feels more family orientated um, and potentially less hyper competitive and commercial. And that's already come through in a lot of research pieces is that people perceive women's sport and men's sport to be very different. And they actually perceive men, uh, women's sport to be better in a lot of ways in terms of a lot of uh, perceptions around it. So if I was the W league, I wouldn't be in a rush. And I know they're, they're probably not that I wouldn't be in a rush to put them into double headers in big stadiums. I wouldn't be in a rush to put them yeah, in those big stadiums or even necessarily into those prime time night time slots. I'd be trying to use it as a development pathway by playing them more at local grounds um, at family friendly time slots, more as a development mechanism rather than an absolute, you know, uh, mega event uh, design, if that makes sense. Well, I can say with that response that when you're at the Football Writers Festival in October, three months or so away, and let's cross fingers that it can happen, that point will get some debate, I can tell you now, <laughs> because there, you know, so a lot of people have uh, worked very hard and advocated very hard to have double headers and that sort of thing. Um, but I totally understand your point, and it's a little bit about the same that um, – people said about tennis for many years as well, you know, professional tennis. Yeah. I mean, that, that sort of moved on a bit too, but, you know, certainly... Well, if I you know, thinking 20, 30 years ago. You know, it's it's an easy trap to fall into. And, you know, even Peter Volandis at, at Rugby League, you know, wanted all three grades played on this one day and fl- fans were going to flock to watch six hours of Rugby League. It just, it's not, it's not reality. It's just, it's devoid of, you know, consumers increasingly are time scarce. Um, they're not interested in watching, they're not, they're fundamentally not interested in watching double headers, triple headers, unless it's deliberately like a, a magic round sort of a marketing effort to around it. So, you know, I'll, I'll fiercely defend the perspective that um, there is more to be gained by separating than combining. Yeah, no, I um, totally understand what you're saying. Um, just a final question because I, we're, we're running out of time and there's just so much to talk about because, uh, I mean, I'd love to talk about the other sports as well. But um, just one question that's of interest to everybody, when do you think the A-League should play? Because as you're probably aware, the she- the season shifted a little this past season that's just finished um, and there's talk about um, a wish to go back to a full winter season for the A-League. What do you think? This might be another good argument for the Writers' Festival. Um, <laughs> look, there's there's very obviously two, and this is the most interesting I've, thing I've observed in, in speaking and researching for this book and speaking to other people in the football tribe. There's a clear divide in, in views here. There's the football first people who just think every decision should be made around you know, this idea of football first, which kind of seems to be about making football look how it does in Europe. Uh, Like that will just magically work in Australia. Um, Then there's, I guess, what I'd call uh, the commercial realists who look at the situation and say, Australia is this unique market. Uh, It's just not practical to uh, have it played in winter when you have all this competition. And when we look at media monitors who capture how much, you know, media attention is being given to each individual sport every day of every week of every month, what that shows empirically is that when A-League is towards the end of its season or at the start when it's in competition with the AFL and NRL, its coverage shrivels to nearly nothing. 
Now, I don't understand for the life of me why, if, if people were for the growth of football, you would want to put it in a, in a time period where it will get considerably less attention. Now, that comes back to whether you view football as this thing that should exist just for people in football right now, or do you want to bring it to the mainstream? It seems that some people have given up on the idea of football being this mainstream thing and should just be purely for football people only. And you know, if you're sitting in channel 10, it would beg a belief that you were willing to spend $200 million on a product unless you were going to get mainstream television ratings out of that product. Mm. So fundamentally, I don't see how you can move it out of summer. Granted, competition is increasing in summer as well in the sports landscape, but I just don't see how you can sign a $200 million contract in good faith with a broadcaster who needs to be getting six-figure ratings on free-to-air television and currently you're getting about 12000 for an A-League game on Fox Sports. I just don't see how you can, you know, I think it would be suicidal to be putting it into winter personally. Well, um, that will certainly be a good debating point as well, let me say. Um, can I just say thank you for your time, but also congratulations also on the book. I mean, I would say that I'm the publisher, I guess, but um, it is a fabulous read, Code Wars, A Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival. And anyone who's interested in it, it just uh, um, some of these issues that we've been talking about, and believe me, there's much more in the book, um, should get a hold of the book and, and certainly have a read of it uh, before Hunter comes to along to the Football Writers Festival, as well as hearing from Hunter himself. We're assembling a panel of people who will be able to debate some of these issues and will have quite different um, different opinions, so it should be fun, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, so, Hunter, thank you very much for your time and um, I appreciate um, talking to you today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it from this edition of Football Insiders. Thank you again to Dr Hunter Fujak, author of Code Wars, The Battle for Fans, Dollars and Survival. It's available from Fair Play Publishing, Good Bookstores and, of course, Amazon, both as a paperback and an e-book. We mentioned a couple of times in that discussion about the Football Writers' Festival, which will be held at Jamboree from 1 to 3 October. That's the long weekend in October. And, of course, we have our fingers crossed that the Football Writers' Festival can go ahead. Let's hope it can. It's going to be a fantastic weekend, um, starting with the Michael Cockrell oration to be given by Dr Andy Harper, as in harps, our Dr Andy Harper, plus an exhibition of portraits in football. Then two days of the Football Writers' Festival itself, where you'll hear from Hunter and a whole range of other terrific speakers. Uh, we've got a great lineup. Check it out at footballwritersfestival.com.au. It's only $15 for the two days. Until our next podcast, I hope you all keep well and safe in these COVID lockdown times, and we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers' Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.